Test, test. Okay. Hello, everybody. If you weren't here in the building, you missed a lot of fun right there, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and I kind of feel wired for sound, to say the least. Well, welcome. Uh, sorry we didn't have our video queued up, but we will worry about that uh, next week. We're in 1 Kings chapter 8 today. Uh, we've been working our way through a series called The Problem with Kings. It's part of our foundation series uh, where we're talking about um, the story of Israel. We do that every fall up until Advent, and we're in the monarchy now. We've seen Saul. We've seen David. Now we're working on Solomon. And Jake did a great job last week highlighting this transition from David to Solomon and reminding us that, that one of the things all these Old Testament kings do is just reiterate the idea that an Old Testament king, a king of Israel, a human king that's not Jesus is never going to solve the problem. And it creates this longing for the coming Davidic kingdom, Jesus, and, uh, and, and that's, that's a good thing for us to look at. What, a lot of time has passed between the text Jake preached on last week and 1 Kings. Uh, in, in about uh, 13 years has passed, and Solomon built the his own palace, and then in another seven years past, he's built the temple, and now he comes in chapter 8 to this point of completion uh, of building the temple. And it must have been quite a moment. Like I've, I've talked about this before, but if you look at the studies of current wealth and the, the price of gold and all the, th- the elements of the temple, the building he's standing there that day dedicating in today's dollars would have been worth about $178 billion dollars. So this is quite the thing that he's standing in front of. He stands before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the people, and he says some really important things to God. We're going to focus in on his prayer from 1 Kings chapter 8, starting with verse 22 and reading through to verse 53. Uh, 1 Kings 8, starting verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said... You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be, and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple. Then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. And when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their fathers. 
When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, the people of Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. And when famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land that you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive in his own land, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you've chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, Hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you... O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. Now, here's what I want to do, just to give you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a little background about what I do in that little room up there as I sit down with the text. I want to start by showing you, and there's a reason I'm doing this, what I do uh, and what I want you to do if you go about approaching the text analytically. This is, this is what we're taught in seminary. There's a, a way to read the Bible and make sure that you're reading it and interpreting it correctly, uh, implying it with integrity. And, and while I know God can speak through verses at a time and one phrase here and a word there, I, and I don't doubt that at all, I also think it's important for us to read carefully Scripture. And, and what we see as we look at this prayer in light of the whole chapter of chapter 8 is a structure that highlights the prayer. There's a reason I'm going to focus in specifically on the prayer. You may remember when we were working through Revelation and I talked about the nature of, of Hebrew writing, that they had different structures. You know, we have a five-paragraph theme that if you go to school and you learn, you learn this. You know, you start with your introduction, which contains your thesis, and then you have three paragraphs that kind of support that, and then you have a conclusion. And that's the way we write. That's the way we're taught to write. Well, Jewish Hebrew writing was different. They had this thing called a chiasm. And I've talked to you about it before, where what they would do is they would work their way into an idea and work their way back out. 
And the point was to focus on what was in the middle. And I, I, I put together a little video, which is horrible here on this screen. It looked great on my computer. Hopefully at home it looks better. But it show, I'm just going to show you chapter 8. If you're here, you're just going to have to trust me because you can't read the text. It's too small. But I'll, if you want to play that, I'll kind of walk us through it. It starts at the very beginning of chapter 8 with the people gathering in verses 1 and 2. And then it moves to sacrifices made for the ark. And then after that, it moves to King Solomon making a statement. Then comes the prayer in the very middle. And then it backs its way out with King Solomon speaking to the crowd and sacrifices. Okay, here comes the video. King Solomon speaking to the crowd. I'm watching. And sacrifices made for the ark. And then once again, a focus on the people as they disperse and go to their home. And what you can see is there's this focus on the people at the beginning. There's this focus on sacrifices. Then Solomon speaking. And the heart of the whole text is the prayer. That's why I want to focus in on that prayer, because it's, it's, it's what, what the, the writer of this chapter is building to the content of the prayer. But, but here's another thing about a prayer and that, that I want you to understand. I guess I'm trying to get sympathy in this first point, really. I'm trying to say, look, this is not an easy text to approach. The exegetical difficulty of preaching a prayer. There's two rules when you go to interpret a text. One is you've got to say, what, was it, what did it mean to the original audience? Who is the audience of a prayer? It's God, right? So that's, that's a little weird for me. Normally, the, the text is pointed to people, and you can say, okay, what did it mean to those people, and what does it mean to us? But this text is pointed to God. So that makes it a little difficult. And second, <laughs> what does it mean within the context of this larger text? If you go to come to Sunday school today, you'll realize that there's two stories about Solomon in the Bible. One is that he was a great guy. And one is that he was not such a great guy. And they're both there side by side. So when you think Solomon's prayer in this period, do we listen to him? Is he right? Or is he twisted and wrong? We have, there's a lot of complications in that. The, the difficulty of preaching a prayer. Am I still here? I can't see me. Oh, there we go. I've got a bigger head than Jake. I just noticed I've been seeing it out of the corner of my eye, and all of a sudden I was like, it's not there anymore. It's gone somewhere. Makes it even harder to preach on a prayer. But I mean, I was thinking that even as Jake was praying today, right? One of the beautiful gifts that Jake gives us as a congregation is the time he spends on this prayer. Because he, he brings before God the concerns of our community and our world. But it's, it's not to teach us, it's to give us words to pray with him to God, right? It's, it's not like Jake's saying, okay, you need to learn about this, you need to learn. Jake is praying. And we're being brought along with it. Well, the same thing is happening in this text. So we, we're going to dive in, but I want you to kind of have that same mindset. It, there's something that, that's, that Solomon's doing that's helping us pray to God, and I'll get to that at the end. But we'll, we'll take a deeper look as we're overhearing a prayer directed to God. I've broken it down into four sections that I see in the prayer, and I think they highlight some truths that we need to reflect on in our own life. I'll get to that at the end. But the first thing I see is this prayer positions the prayer, the person who's praying, it positions him correctly. Now, I'm going to wade into some controversial waters here because I know people have a lot of opinions about Homer Simpson and The Simpsons, the TV show, the, the animated show. And I'm not endorsing the show. I'm not giving it a blank check and saying it's great. But in some of the Simpson episodes, there are some really good critiques of Christianity, the way we practice it. And there's some humor pointed at the church, which actually speaks deep to us if we will listen. There's an episode called Missionary Impossible, where Homer goes on a short-term mission trip. And he builds a church 
for this, this community somewhere in the deep, dark folds of Africa. And then at the end of it, he's standing looking at this church, and he says this. There's a picture there. Well, I may not know much about God, but I have to say we built a pretty nice cage for him. Do you hear that? I may not know much about God, but I have to say we built a pretty nice cage for him. What Homer is pointing at in Christianity, sometimes we use the church to constrain God, right? We, we have him controlled. And I think that's a, a really valid critique, but there's two phrases right off the bat in Solomon's prayer that see Solomon's taking a whole different, uh, a different angle on it. First, he says, God is unlike any other. This, this God, you're, you're not like anybody else. We've, we've seen that as we've gone through this series, right? The people don't need a king. They've got a king, God, and yet they ask for a king and they get Saul. And then uh, when, when God picks the next king, he doesn't pick the powerful. He picks the lowly shepherd boy. Who does that? Who's like that? And even this lowly shepherd boy, when he's exalted to be the king, he messes up over and over and over. And God still says, I love him. I want to bless him. And then Solomon, and as you read around Solomon, he's, he's got some mixed up stuff. Sometimes he looks great, sometimes he doesn't. And God says to him, hey, Solomon, let me give you whatever you want. And Solomon says, I want wisdom. Remember that story? This God is unlike any other. He does things differently than anybody else. And, and the second phrase, in verse 23, he says, to you who keep your covenant of love with your people. And when you read the Old Testament, you don't often hear it described as a covenant of love. It's a covenant of the law. You do the right thing, and you'll be blessed. You do the wrong thing, and you'll be punished. But Solomon sees it a little deeper, and he says, really, this is a covenant of love. You're, you're making an agreement with us because you love us. And he continues in verse 27 with this rhetorical question. Will God really dwell on the earth? I mean, if you're his contractor, at the end of that, you're like, well, I hope he does. We just built a $178 billion house for him, right? It's like this, this, this soul-searching moment when he's in front of this beautiful temple that's beyond anything that's ever been built. And he says, will God even dwell on the... Is that even possible? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple I built. See, in that moment, he comes to realize how futile... His efforts are in building a house for God. How could you ever be contained? And he goes on to say, you know, you really said, God, that your name's going to be here. It's a part of you, but it's not all of you. The, the heaven is your, the whole world is where you live. You see, it's a good thing to start our prayers reorienting ourselves in light of who God is. That's one thing I see in this prayer that's very, very important. Second is it focuses on forgiveness. Solomon realizes we have issues. Verse 31 and 32, we need your justice. When there's an issue between two people and there's injustice, will you come in and help us with that? Verse 33 and 34, we need your forgiveness because we walk away, we sin. Verse 35 to verse 40, when our sin has affected even the environment around us and the rain and and, and the things that are going on, we, we need your forgiveness, he says. He's honest. In verse 31, he says, when this happens, verse 33, verse 35, verse 37, he's not saying, okay, God, if we mess up, please listen. God, if we, if we have injustice in our lives, please listen. He's saying when it happens, he's, he's focused on his need for forgiveness. It comes out of the positioning. Once you see who God is, you begin to see who you are. 
And at that point, we either run away from God because <laughs> he's just too big or we admit the truth about our lives. And he's under no illusions that this building of the temple is going to fix everything. There's no way, he says, that we're not going to still sin. This building is not going to stop that. But God, what we need in those moments is your forgiveness. Far too often, we think if we can just get this one thing done, if we can get this one person elected, if we can get this one law passed, it's going to change everything. (laughs) It doesn't change the heart. And his prayer is asking for forgiveness over and over and they're both personally and corporately. He says, you know, when, when there's injustice between these two men, help it, help it get fixed. Give them forgiveness. Help them have wisdom. Let the guilty be seen and the innocent be seen. But then he's also talking corporately. When, when, when the problems affect all of the environment and the whole culture, and even when the people get carried away because of their sin, God, we need forgiveness. There's an honesty and a reaching out, a beautiful section here about our need of God. First of all, who he is reorients the prayer in the right direction and then realizing I'm going to need forgiveness all the way through this relationship with you. And then there's these two sections that I speak, think speak quite loudly into our own context today. Number In verses 41 to 43, dealing with a foreigner who comes to seek God. And in verse 44 to 45, when we go to war against our enemies. And I, I think these two are actually related um, they're beside each other, and this is what I'm saying, so you can wrestle with it and disagree or not. But I think these two statements together reorients ethnicity or nation around God. Look closely at verses 41 to 43. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, For men will hear your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever this foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and may know that this house I've built bears your name. He says they'll they'll hear, they'll come, they're going to see your glory. People are going to come here from all nations. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish or not. See, it's reorienting nation and ethnicity around their desire to seek God. See, one of the things we often forget about Jesus teaching about the kingdom is it, it, it puts us all on an evil playing, even playing field. I said evil playing field. I meant even playing field. Sometimes your mouth just goes. I'll blame it on the mic. But all of us are equal before God. And it doesn't matter our our nation or our ethnicity. What we need to do is reorient the way we see the world around people and God, not countries or ethnicities. You know, as believers, our first response should always be, how does God view this person? I'm going to speak really bluntly here because I hear lots in political circles about people coming from other countries and what they're going to take away from me. If that's your first response to people, you're seeing them more by their ethnicity or their nation or by their economic situation than you are by the fact that they are created in the image of God and deeply loved by him. And I know it may cost, but that's why the kingdom of countercultural is so different than the way we live. We're not seen from the perspective of the kingdom of God. And then we come to verse 44 and 45, and he talks about fighting your enemies. Oh, Jeff, but that's nation. But what's the phrase he says there? 
He says, well, let me just look it up so I get it right. Verse 44. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you may send them. Like, you've got to realize, even when there is this difficulty of fighting and struggle, it has to be where God is leading and not where the nation is leading. Wherever you send them. You see, in our, in our country, in our, in our age now, it's far too easy to lump our nationalism together with our faith. And we, we, we somehow identify that our country is God's agent. We're doing the right thing for the world. We've got to be careful with that. I, I saw several years ago, and it just, it just highlighted that contrast to me. I, I should get the video clip, but it's almost too difficult to watch. It's a sermon preached in a country near here. I won't say anything about where that is. Uh, and the pastor spends the first five or ten minutes talking about how God loves, loves Muslims, how God wants to reach Muslims. And then the next 15 minutes of his sermon talk about how we need to blow their country away to eradicate them. And I just thought, don't you see the disconnect? I get there are very difficult times and there's, there's, there's a, a fundamentalist form of religions that can be really dangerous, but we've got to see people as created in the image of God. We've got to let the kingdom not be about any or a nation, but about God and people created in his image. It's a radical thought. I'll talk more about it in a minute, but finally, I've got to get to the end of this prayer. The fourth thing is it longs for, for restoration and connection. Verse 46 opens with a return to the reality of sin, and it moves into this prophetic statement. He says, just in case, God, we ever sin and we're taken away from this land and held captive by our enemies. Solomon is speaking about what's going to happen in the future. I don't know if he knows that, if God's just leading this prayer, I don't know what. But, but remember, the exile does come. It happens, and they're taken away to Babylon. And he says, when that happens and they turn back to you, bring them home. Reconnect them. And the reason is, is who they are. Verse 51, for they are your people and your inheritance. Verse 53, you single them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance. They are yours. You've chosen them for you. There's this longing in all of us. And I think that comes back to that created in the image of God. It's something inherent in who we are as humans that we want to be reconnected to God. We want to know that, that, that we're accepted, that we, we, we fit. Now, that, we may not even know we want that. You know, I think it was Voltaire talked about this God-shaped void in people that they seek to fill in all kinds of ways. But, but when we wander away, this prayer says it's honest. We're, we're gone, but we want to come home. We want to be restored. We want to be connected. So now let's, let's fast forward 3,000 years. What is a dedication prayer for a temple that doesn't even exist anymore? <laughs> what does it say to us 3,000 years later? Is that what you want to know? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Good, because we can continue. Thank you. You just give me permission to go for another 10 or 15 minutes. Thank you, Pauline. The application of this prayer for us is, has to do with what I'm calling the dedication of our temple through prayer. The dedication of our temple. Scriptures are clear. The Old Testament temple has been fulfilled in Jesus. He is the new place where God dwells among his people. And, and because of that, if you follow the New Testament... Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and we become the body of Christ, and now we are the temple that God dwells in. And so we are the answer to Solomon's question in verse 27. Will God really dwell on earth? Will he actually come here? Can he ever actually live here? Yes, he will, and he does in his church. 
in believers. It says in Ephesians 2, 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Will God really dwell on earth? Yes, he will. And he does right now in us. The question is, since we are this temple, how will we dedicate ourselves to God through the, through the means of this prayer. For, there's four things, believe it or not. There were four things I pulled out. There's four things we can apply. It's a nice little trick I did there. First thing we have to do is we have to live in a posture of surrender. The prayer starts with this reorientation of the prayer to God. And I think this is the fundamental challenge that faces us every single day. How will I live my life? Am I the most important part of this story? Or will I start by orienting my temple to God and realizing how big he is? To realize everything that I have, everything that I am is all pointed toward him and for him and by him and to be used for him. This reorientation is even when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This then is how you should pray. Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, see the focus? It's interesting, our Father, there's a relationship there, but in, you're out there too. Hallowed, holy, sanctified be your name. You, I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that beginning of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, is the same thing. It's a reorientation of our life to God, to realize he's the central agent, to live in this posture of surrender. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you and you receive what you've received from God, you are not your own. You're bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. It's it's a whole reorientation of the whole purpose of our lives every single day. To see him for who he really is. To realize that, that God does dwell on the earth in us, but what that means is our lives are no longer about ourselves. They're given to something bigger. Now, when we see God for who he is, it forces us to see ourselves for who we are. And I think when that happens, this prayer reminds us that we need to be honest and welcome grace. Two different things. Once you clearly see God, I said this, when you see him for who he is, the temptation is to run away because it's too big, it's too overwhelming. He's asking too much. But, but, and especially when we see ourselves in light of that. But, but the point is to be honest, to take those that confession to God and be willing to receive grace. In the Lord's Prayer, what does he continue on after that first part? Give us today our daily bread. I need, I need from you, God. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. There's this honesty of our own brokenness, our own need, and a willingness to receive from God. Let me ask you this. How many of you find it easier to give to somebody than to receive from somebody? Everybody does. Well, that's a problem because the fundamental posture of the Christian life, I think, is receiving. If you can't receive from God, you have nothing. (laughs) And we've got to be careful because we build our lives on what we do for others. And and what what this prayer is saying is a temple. I need to be my own brokenness and, and be willing to receive grace. 
We tend to orient our lives about what we've done for God. Look, God, we built you this great temple. We're doing all these great things for you. Instead of being honest with who we are and receiving grace, welcoming grace. Third thing I've said is, once again, especially relevant to today's context, being the temple of God here and now means that we deeply hold to the truth that the only kingdom is God's. There's that section about foreigners and about battles, right? And my point was that Solomon's prayer reorients people. It doesn't deny the fact that they're Jewish. In fact, it, it, it affirms that God has chosen the Jewish race as a way to reach the world. But it says that the kingdom of God is bigger than just the Jewish race, just than the nation of Israel. John says, for God so loved the world. What we have to see is that once we follow Jesus, the kingdom of God becomes our home. And yes, we're Canadians. I'm Canadian and American. And, and, and we have an identity in our citizenship, but it is second to our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. No nation or ethnicity is left out of the opportunity to come into the kingdom of God. That's what's so radical about the early church, because you know what they did? The Jews and the Gentiles hung out together, and the rich and the poor shared, the, they, they shared stuff. All these social barriers that we put up, whether it be ethnicity or, or even religious at that point, or, or economic or social, all those things came down with the kingdom of God. And the rich man and the poor man were welcomed equally. The Jew and the, Gent the Gentile were welcomed equally to God. Today we tend to build walls or we see one nation as superior to others. But the truth is there is only one kingdom and all people are welcome there. And let me just say one thing here. As Christians, I, I'm, I'm talking a lot about kind of our... Um, citizenship or our politics and how that the kingdom of God transcends that but in a very tangible way another way that we do that is we isolate people based on where they are in life based on choices they've made based on skills that they have and and, and we kind of feel like uh, we can be welcoming to people if they measure up to this standard if they're willing to make good choices if they're willing to reach out and receive help that's there for them. It's playing out in our town right now as people with addiction and homelessness and mental illness. There's, there's a huge discussion going on about that. And all I can tell you is the kingdom of God says that every single person, whether they choose against addiction or whether they're trapped in it, every single person is created in the image of God and, and worthy of dignity and value and love. And as Christians... We need to receive them the way Jesus would receive them. That's not going to answer all the problems. It's not going to make life easier. But, but we, we can't think from economic interests or from what we think people need to do. We've got to think from the image of God in people. And I'll get off that soapbox right now. The kingdom of God breaks down all our typical relationships. Look at Jesus in Matthew 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And Jesus replied to him, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here's my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And that makes all you mothers just think, that's not very nice, Jesus. 
That is not very nice. That's rude, right, Joy? That's rude. But what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God transcends even your family relationships. It reorients everything to, to people, humanity created in the image of God and their creator. The kingdom is all there is. The last thing I see about us praying a prayer of dedication for our temple is just this reminder that the gospel meets our deepest longings. See, Solomon knew the people would reject God. Eventually, they'd go into exile. He knew they would be forced from their homes and disconnected. He also knew that a connection to God was deeper than a geographic location. He did say, look back to this temple. This is, this is the place we need to remember that, that we are yours. It's not a place you need. But he voiced these deep longings that people have for restoration in brokenness and for connection. You know, we all want it. We crave it. And, and we feel it even more during a pandemic. We want to be connected to each other. It feels weird. How many of you have walked into a room with somebody and you just, your hand goes up to shake your hand and you just, it just feels weird. It's because so much of part of being human is being connected to each other and being connected to God. That's what we were created for. These are our deepest longings. And the God spiritual temple. We talked in the First John series about that icon with the Trinity of the, uh, the table of the Trinity and how there's this open spot for us to come forward and be a part that we can actually enter into relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. John writes and says, we know that we live in Him. That doesn't mean with Him. That's somehow we live in Him. We're connected. And He in us because He's given us of the Spirit. And we've seen and testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. I don't get it. But it's deeper than just kind of believing something. There's actual life that's connected there. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. That's that restoration and that connection. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, but we love because he first loved us. There's the deepest longings of human nature are restoration and connection. We do not want to be abandoned. We do not want to be left alone. We do not want to feel the pain of broken relationships. And the gospel says the kingdom of God came to invite you into that, to reconnect you so that you can actually be the temple where God lives in you. That's the calling, to live, to see God for who he is and to live and to surrender to that, to be honest about our need, to welcome the grace that God gives, to reorient all of our life around the kingdom, even though people won't get it, even though people think we're crazy. When you start loving people that don't, give you anything that make your life more difficult and you actually love them and accept them the way God would accept them people don't understand that because as we as we do this as we live as the temple we we grow in reconnection to each other and to God and we become this this temple that houses the presence of God isn't that wouldn't it be how many times have you said I just want God to show up in that situation I just want him to be there I just want God to do something just to make his presence known. Well, guess what? You are the temple. 
And when you walk into that situation, the Spirit of God lives in you. When two or three of you come together, it's even the Spirit of God lives in the two or three of you, and, and you can be the presence of God in that situation. God can empower your actions in a way that, that opens people's eyes to his love and his grace, touches their need for reconnection and restoration. We live as a temple that houses his presence in a world that's longing for restoration and connection. And that should be the prayer of our hearts every day, to live in such a way that people can be brought into this temple of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story of a temple built 3,000 years ago. I would love to have seen it. And today, the temple seems a bit more subversive. It's a bit more invisible. It's us and all our brokenness and all our weakness and all the mistakes we make in our relationships with each other and all the failures that we live through day after day. But God, help us to to, to do these things. Help us to orient our lives toward you as, as the eternal God, the King of all, the one who, who's the earth belongs to you. Help us to admit honestly our brokenness and to welcome your grace. Help us to accept all people the way you accept people. And may we live in such a way that, that, that leads them to reconnection, restoration, forgiveness, and wholeness. And we thank you that it's not us that has to do this work, but it's your presence in us. We just pray that we'd be faithful to carry you to the places that you want to go. That we'd be faithful to live as you would live in those places. And that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you know what you just did. Did you see what you sang? Spirit, lead me. Somebody give me the words. Where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you may call me. What's the next part? Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. I need my wife on time. You guys sang it. I was watching it. But you just said, I want to be your temple, God. I want to go beyond borders. I want to go places I've never gone before. And, and the beauty is I can rest in your embrace because I am yours and you are mine. I don't have to be afraid to go there because that's, that's where you're going to take me. Peter writes, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you go crossing borders, as you go where your feet have not wandered before and you love people the way you think. And it doesn't mean that it's always easy or, or, or life's just going to go great if you just do what he says. Right? He was the one that was re rejected because he lived that way. But we are called to be this temple that houses the presence of God and goes to love the way he does as a spiritual house offering spiritual sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable unto God. Go and live in that this week. Amen.